Amen. If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 9. Uh, the book of Acts chapter 9. We'll begin reading in uh, verse 32. We'll read on into chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 8. So again, the, the book of Acts chapter 9. We will return there uh, for these next few weeks and continue uh, our journey uh, through this uh, absolutely fascinating book. I've, I've noted on a number of occasions that what we see in Acts is uh, a church on the move, uh, people's lives being transformed uh, by the gospel. But uh, one of the challenges that we have in, in reading and understanding and imply, applying and interpreting uh, this book is uh, that which was a part of this uh, time of transition and, and trans transformation that was unique uh, to the time of uh, those apostles, those early associates uh, with the apostles, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, and, and what is normative uh, for the church uh, for the, the 2,000 years that's going to intervene, 2,000 years now plus, uh, that uh, have intervened since uh, the time of these apostles and the time of the return of our Lord. And so we're going to look today and we'll continue to emphasize that what we see, of course, is uh, the power of the gospel, the ministry of uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, working through the apostles, working through their associates, uh, uh, this dynamic reality of, of what God is going to do uh, in the world through this new entity, this promised entity, these, uh, this mysterious entity, uh, namely uh, the church. And so let's watch as uh, the church really is going to transition in a number of uh, uh, particulars and obviously going to continue uh, to experience the transforming uh, work of the Holy Spirit uh, in and through the ministry of the Word of God. So read with me, if you will, this morning, uh, verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there uh, among them all, he came down... To also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Uh, there he found a man named uh, Aeneas, or Aeneas, uh, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was a, in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him. Please come with us without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing uh, tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha. Arise, and she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And 
Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, uh, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a word that is indeed inspired of you. It is without Era, it will never fail. I pray that your spirit would give us the ears to hear, the hearts to understand, the will to obey uh, your truth, Lord. I pray that indeed you would apply uh, these things uh, to our good, for, for our good and for uh, your glory, Lord. We ask uh, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Acts begins with the promise made to the disciples who were gathered there in Jerusalem upon the ascension of our Lord Jesus, that they would receive power through the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and that through that power they would take the gospel beyond Jerusalem and Judea, and that they would actually go into Samaria and the entire Gentile world. The book is the inspired written record of those disciples doing just that. To be sure, it is a selective history. It is a theological history. The, uh, Luke writes it for the purpose of a testimony of what God did among them at that time. The power promised by Jesus was displayed in both the proclamation of the gospel and with accompanying powerful signs that began at Pentecost. The displays of Miraculous power continued by God speaking in visions and speaking through angels. The power was displayed by healing of the sick, the protection and deliverance of the disciples, even in the raising of the dead. That which the old covenant prophets had done and experienced and what had been done and seen uh, on behalf of the Lord or by the Lord Jesus Christ was now being done through these apostles and maybe a few others closely associated uh, with them. Just as important to the growth and transformation of the church was God's work in His church through His spirits in ways that would be considered non-miraculous, but yet equally essential to the establishment, to the growth of the church. God unified the church both in doctrinal and in practical ways. Ethnic and social boundaries were crossed even eradicated. The disciples were emboldened and encouraged even when threatened with punishment for their proclamation of the gospel. The church was gifted to serve and sacrifice for the glory of God and for the expansion of the gospel and the growth of the church. 
As we make our way through these chapters, we note that Luke has woven together characters and episodes that, that demonstrate the transition, transformation of the church. The focus of Luke's narrative is soon going to shift from Peter to the converted Pharisee that we looked at two weeks ago, namely uh, Saul of Tarsus. The center of the church is going to move from Jerusalem to Antioch and even beyond. And the church, although begun by Jews, seemingly uh, for Jews, would increasingly uh, welcome Gentiles into their fellowship. The church is undergoing dramatic uh, change uh, in its makeup, uh, in its outlook, even its understanding of its purpose. And so we come today, and if you'll notice back in verse 31 of chapter 9, we see what Luke does on a number of occasions throughout the book. He gives us what might be called a, a status report, an update, a, a summary of what was going on or what was being experienced uh, by the disciples uh, in the church at that particular uh, time. And so the church, having been relieved of the persecution being delivered by Saul, namely because Saul had been converted and so he was no longer the persecutor of the church, he was the proclaimer of the church's Lord, of the church's gospel. And so there was a, a sense of peace there even in Judea, in Galilee, and in Samaria, those early places that the gospel went. And it was being built up. How? By the proclamation of the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit working in and among the people of God. And they were walking in a way that was characterized by the appropriate fear of the Lord. If I could say, and I suppose in a number of ways we could speak of things that are missing in the contemporary church, but one of the things that I would say that I think is obviously missing from the contemporary church is a sense of the fear of the Lord, that, that we think that God is our good buddy who winks at our sin. And even for those who know Jesus Christ, who are born again, who, who are filled with the Spirit, there should be a type of reverence, a type of awe in terms of God and His holiness, and we should appropriately not be paralyzed by our fear of the Lord, but be empowered by our fear of our Lord, who is indeed uh, the Holy God. And He indeed is our comforter now, as He was their comforter then. And so we find here in verse 32, uh, again, the church is experiencing growth and success and peace, and we find Peter once again mentioned. So we've been introduced to Saul. We've seen that he is converted. And as I've noted in, in these central sections that I think really even begin at chapter 7 and will run all the way into chapter 13, uh, Luke wants us to get a glimpse of what's changing, the, the dynamic that is transforming, the, the dynamic that's going to transition uh, from highlighting Peter and his work, and rightly so, to highlighting Paul and his work, and rightly so. And so we're told here that uh, in this account, the highlight being the healing of Aeneas at Lydda, that Peter 
was traveling. He was doing an itinerant ministry. I, it, it, it kind of gave me a bit of a, a tickle. He was going here and there. That, that's, that's kind of country language. Uh, in, in Somerville, we just said, uh, here and yon. Uh, that, that they just, you know, willy-nilly going everywhere. Well, of course, we know what. He wasn't going willy-nilly. He was sensitive to the leadership, to the direction of, of God's Holy Spirit. And he had an ongoing work associated with his travel. Remember, the gospel is expanding. It is taking root. Uh, churches are being founded and so there must be some type of oversight, and it's oversight that's going to come, rightfully so, from those original 12 disciples. Now, as just a short and, and brief aside, this would be a place that if your background is uh, in the Methodist church or the Episcopal church or even certain branches of the Presbyterian church, you will find in uh, their understanding of church governance that there are those that are outside of a local body that can have a certain amount of say, a certain amount of insight, of input, even of authority over a local congregation, as distinctive from the Baptist understanding. And I often remind you, there's nobody from downtown Birmingham, uh, Montgomery, or Nashville uh, that can say anything about what we do uh, in North Clay Baptist Church. Uh, they, can, they can kick us out, but they really can't control what we do and we don't do, okay? And that's an interesting dynamic. Uh, I can see certain strengths. I, if, as I, if I were the presiding bishop over the Southern Baptist Convention, I'd certainly straighten it out. It would be right. It would do everything perfectly. But I'm not, and I'm not going to be, so they'll probably continue to flounder around a bit. But uh, at any rate, we see that Peter takes uh, kind of the horns of the situation and is moving in and out. And he's functioning, seemingly to me, as he would refer to himself in his epistle of 1 Peter, not just as an apostle or not as an apostle, which would seem to be an office that would be superior to that of an elder, but he can speak of himself as an elder, okay? And that he's going and giving oversight uh, to the churches. Now, it seems like that Paul is going to systemize a bit more church order and kind of that threefold division uh, that, that interests us, uh, that of the pastor-teacher or the elder, the overseer, the bishop, the deacon, and then the congregation itself, okay? And, and so, but we already see that it seems that Peter would be about instructing those that are going to remain within the local church so that they would pass along that faith once and for all delivered to the saints, that they too would submit to the authority of the Word of God, that they, like that original church in Jerusalem, would be devoted to the apostles' teaching, uh, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Uh, that, that fourfold uh, means that God has given to us to grow the church for the flourishing of every member uh, within uh, that church. And so Peter is going about doing that. We'll see uh, by the time Paul calls those Ephesians elder and what's maybe really my favorite part of the book of Acts, Acts 20, when he calls uh, uh, the Ephesian elders to him at uh, Miletus to, to meet with them one final time. And he, he lays out exactly how leadership, how elders 
is to function and reminds them of how he functioned among them. And I would think probably how Peter functioned at some level as he went to the different churches to be sure that they were founded upon the gospel, upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he established a foundation and a structure by which they could flourish, by which they could grow and would provide for their ongoing, uh, their future stability. And so as he's doing that, he is going down. Now we notice down, he's going down in elevation, okay? He's actually going north in direction, but he's going uh, to this first city, uh, to Lida, a coastal city, which was a little bit uh, down in elevation uh, from uh, Jerusalem. And so he goes to that coastal city. He is going west. He's going to a place that's going to be increasingly uh, oriented toward the Gentiles, which is, again, a, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen uh, with the gospel, with evangelism. It's going to be increasingly moving uh, toward the Gentile world, and certainly it's going to places, uh, uh, the three places that are mentioned in our text today, uh, Lydda and Joppa and Caesarea, are all transportation hubs. They're port cities, cities in which people are going to be flowing into and out of. And so we're told that he is going down to the saints, to the holy ones, to those that have been made holy by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's always worth mentioning. Now, uh, I'm told that I occasionally like, act slightly less than that of a saint. I, I, don't, I don't see it myself, but I get indicted that way on occasion. But the truth is, it's important for us to understand that for those of us that know Jesus Christ, we are saints because of Him. And in Him. That is, we have been made holy once and for all by the efficient and the effective sacrifice of our Savior. And it's okay to smile at that, folks. It is, that is good news. That is the good news of the gospel, that we have been indeed made holy. So He visits uh, the church, the people who are saints in Jesus Christ. And so in verse 33, He finds this man, Aeneas, and he's been bedridden for eight years. Now, it's interesting he is not described as a believer or disciple or saint. So I think there's every possibility that he is actually in this state an, an unbeliever, that, that God unilaterally is not going to save him because of his faith. He is going to work and heal him and presumably give to him a faith by which he will be saved. But he is paralyzed. And once again, we would emphasize that these diseases so many times picture the lost condition. That, that is a condition that is helpless and it is hopeless apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there, there is only a unilateral work of God by which this man could be healed and by which we can be saved. And so he has been bedridden uh, for eight years. And, I, and I, I've had some experience with those that are confined to beds for extended periods, and it gets to be a very, very difficult thing. And I can't imagine in the ancient world without uh, modern inventions that aid uh, to prevent bed sores and the like, I cannot imagine the state that this particular individual was in, the, the decline of his physical body from being immobile, essentially, for eight years. And so 
he is there, and they call uh, Peter uh, to come. Uh, no doubt familiar by, uh, about what's been going on uh, in the uh, city of uh, Jerusalem and, and familiar with what has happened uh, both through Jesus Christ and those apostles. And so Peter goes, as requested, he comes, and he speaks to this man that is paralyzed. And, and it seems to me to be maybe very intentionally uh, by the providence of God, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, and certainly the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Luke writes, maybe intending to remind us of uh, Jesus' healing of the paralytic whose friends led him down in his presence uh, coming down through uh, the roof. But Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And so he responds to that, that power of God. Now, let's be sure. That's not formulaic and it's not incantational. That is, these are not just magic words that every Christian can speak and reverse uh, the maladies uh, that we encounter, okay? Uh, but that Peter is very clear that the power for healing uh, does not reside in me. It is a, a power that is derived and that from God Himself and God has chosen, He is pleased to use me as an instrument in applying that power to those who are so afflicted. And so this man, because he is healed, he gets up and does as directed. And again, we can parallel that with salvation. Why do you believe and why do you act in, ter in, in, in terms consistent with a believer? Well, it's because you've been believed. It's because you have been made alive in Christ. You've been healed by His power. And so he gives him the directions uh, to make his bed. And then and he gets up, he, he rose. And then notice there in verse 35, again, kind of a summary of this little dramatic episode. And all the residents of Lida and Sharon saw him. So that's presumably a, a small a city there and then the region, uh, Sharon. You've heard the phrase, the plains of Sharon or Sharon. And so they heard of this, that got their attention, and, and to be sure that miracles in and of themselves really do not convert. It is the hearing of the gospel. They, there may be some convincing work that goes on by the Holy Spirit, but it's still the ministry of the Word that is proclaimed in the Spirit of God that brings salvation. And always remember this. Apart from the work of the Spirit of God, the unbeliever will find an excuse to disbelieve the obvious. They'll find some way to excuse their misbehavior or their unbelief until what? God opens their eyes, gives them the ears to hear, opens their hearts to receive uh, the truth. And so uh, we see here uh, that, that Peter... Uh, is available uh, to go, and he's available uh, to be used by God to bring about this dramatic healing. And it, it does, as we move to the next episode, this raising of Tabitha uh, from uh, the dead 
at, at Joppa that begins in verse 36. Now again, she is described as a disciple and, and just kind of saying, again, as a bit of a, a, an aside, that she did exactly what James would later prescribe for the church as he wrote in James chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. I'll just take a moment just to read. And, and you've heard me say these kinds of things before. Uh, there is kind of a, a priority, uh, even in the course of how I schedule my week, to the fact that I have to appear here at an appointed time to preach the Word. And, and that, that has, requires a certain amount of, of work to do that. But it is also true, and it's also a necessary work of being a pastor, of having uh, the duties of shepherding a flock, to go to the people of the church, to be present with the people of the church when they're in times of adversity. Okay, And so notice James wrote in five, James 5.13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so that is something we do. Now, I don't do, I, I've, I've told you this before, uh, I don't do a lot of anointing. I, I really do it when people request that I do. Uh, I think it's a biblical thing to do. Uh, I don't think there's anything, any, anything incantational about using oil, but it is a reminder of our dependence upon the work of the Holy Spirit. And as great as, if, if you get sick, I have no problem if you say, I made an appointment with the doctor. That's a good thing. That's a wise move. But we are dependent upon God, even to utilize whatever the doctor does or whatever he prescribes for our healing. And so a reminder of uh, dependence and a reminder of, of the important work that elders lead in and the entire church participates in, in that every member is called to an incarnational uh, ministry to one another in, in the time of, of affliction, in the time of, of sickness. And Peter himself uh, would speak of this once again uh, when he speaks of his being an elder in 1 Peter chapter 5, that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Here's the thing I know about you, and I, this is probably the 27th time I've said it in 19 years, but, but just so you remember, that when you enter a season of suffering, of affliction, of sorrow, that Satan is observing, and he truly wants to devour you particularly. And here, this is a strange phenomenon with, with people, but, but you see it, constantly and, I, and I'm a bit like this I'm hurting I'm sick leave me alone I want to withdraw and be my, by myself and sometimes that's that's not terrible but so many times what do we need we need the touch from the one another's and we need to always be aware as we gather that we have this opportunity to to minister uh, to one another because I I don't I don't don't have anything particularly in mind this morning, but I'm sure if I made you go by my office before you left here today and tell me that which is troubling you, there would probably be some things that would be quite troubling. Uh, you know, now some of you might say, well, you know, uh, 
my wife burned the turkey Thanksgiving Day, and I'm really upset about it. But, uh, uh, but some of you may have things that are really a challenge. And so, again, we want to be present, and it is important. And notice here, uh, the disciples and Jesus himself didn't tend to, to mail it in. They didn't tend to use long distance, okay? They went. They went. And they demonstrated the importance of, of a presence. And so, verse 36. In Joppa, a disciple, her name is Tabitha. Translated means Dorcas. And that, that all translated into English uh, is that the, the name or, or the, means gazelle, a, a kind of a deer-like animal. She is described as full of good works and acts of charity. And so uh, her faith was, was in action. Seems maybe as we get into this, uh, reflective even of the character of, of the woman described in Proverbs 31, uh, that, that she was a worker at home and did things that, that should be admired in terms of, uh, of uh, domestic industry, industry, and that she was to be commended uh, for that. And we're told that this woman of, of outstanding reputation, she died, and they prepared her for burial and has actually placed her in an, an upper room. And they hear that Peter is in the adjacent city, about 10 miles away, of Joppa, and they go to get him. Now, that's interesting. Uh, whether their intentions were, it'd be a great thing since, the, since this lady has been seemingly at the center of what we're doing as a church. She has ministered uh, to the other ladies and the other families within the church. She, she's been a dynamic influence for the gospel. It would be a great thing to have an authoritative word from one of those apostles. And since Peter is so close by, maybe he would come. I don't, think, I don't know that they have in mind the fact that she would be raised from the dead. But upon request, Peter goes. He wasn't too busy. Hey, I'm, I'm busy here in Joppa. I've got a lot going on. Uh, God bless them, but you know, I really just can't be bothered right now. No, we're told that he goes, he uh, arrives, he goes to the upper room, and it's interesting. And it's my suspicion, I don't know this, that uh, Dorcas was a widow because there in verse 39, all the widows stood beside him and they were weeping that there seemed to already probably be something of a type of ministry that was focused uh, on uh, the widows ministering to each other and probably those outside of uh, that, the realm of being uh, widows. And so she, uh, they show the garments and the tunics uh, that, that she had uh, made as a part of what they did together. It's kind of an interesting uh, bit of information on the uh, early uh, church. And it, again, it reminds us, sometimes I think when you, just the fact that you get older, and certainly, if you are widowed, you may think, "Well, I just really can't can't be at the you know the cutting edge, the forefront of what the church does." No, ma'am, and no, sir. There is still plenty for you to do to uh, contribute for you to do in the church. And if you have any doubt about that, uh, again, my office is always open. There is a role for you uh, to play in seeing that the gospel continues and is there for your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and on down the line. So, interesting, and look at verse 40 there. And I'm not sure, again, whether Peter was very self-conscious about this 
whether Luke was self-conscious about this, probably both. Maybe in the, in the, the, the way uh, that we find that, that Elisha uh, ministered there uh, in, in the Old uh, Testament, 2 Kings chapter 4, and his healing of the Shulamite son or the raising of Shulamite son, he, he empties the room. And so he knelt down and he prayed and he commands Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now, as I've said before, suggest, I said it with the uh, paralytic here. I've said it every time we've looked at the account of Lazarus being raised from uh, the grave. This is a picture of what it means to become a Christian, that you are as dead spiritually as this lady was physically. And there was nothing she could do to contribute to her being raised from the dead. There was, that she had nothing. She did nothing. God acted upon her. And if you're a Christian today, God acted upon you. And He made you alive in Christ Jesus. And then you responded positively to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You believed unto salvation. And so, she did as Peter commanded. She sat up, she stood up, and she was presented to all of those saints, and they uh, rejoiced. And again, the end result being that many saw, many heard, and they believed uh, the gospel. And the, the final note on the episode, verse 43, And he stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon a tanner. Now what significance could that have? And there may be many, but it seems the obvious and, and what most commentators will say. Tanners worked with dead animal skins. And under Jewish law, they would have been considered ceremonially unclean. That, that they could not have not have entered uh, the fellowship of, uh, of, of the old covenant uh, people there in the synagogue or the temple. And yet, Peter is moving toward his understanding of the inclusion of both Jew and Gentile in this thing that we call the church, that there's not any such thing as this ceremonial uh, uncleanness. And so uh, that's why I went ahead and, and read the first part of chapter 10 that we're coming back to next week, where, where the, the barrier is definitively and decisively broken down between Jew and Gentile, that the Gentiles are going to be included in this thing called the church, that they are going to hear and receive the gospel, that they're going to be co-heirs, they're going to be fellow beneficiaries of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're introduced to the city of Caesarea and this centurion whose name is Cornelius. And we're told about the vision and how he responds to that vision and incites this man, Peter. Uh, to come and join him in Caesarea. And that is going to be, for the book of Acts, I think for the church, a pivotal moment in which there's going to be the transition, as I mentioned, from Peter to Paul, from Jerusalem to areas beyond, and from Jew to Gentile. And so we can celebrate the expansion of the church, and the church, as described in the book of Acts, expanded the same way the church expands today by the proclamation of the gospel, by the work 
of the Word and the Spirit. And I, I, wanna, I started to really emphasize this, and I changed my mind. But I used the word transition and transformation very intentionally. I could have thrown in there evolved. And it, it prompted me to think of former President Obama's statement about how he had involved on, evolved on certain moral issues tragically. And the church is going to be under pressure to transition and transform and accept all manner of unbiblical, ungodly, immoral types of behaviors and identities and so forth. And so we want to be very careful that we're talking about a gospel transition and we're talking about uh, barriers that, that have nothing to do with behavior, okay? It has to do with race and things like that. And that has no factor in being included among the people of God. So I'm just telling you, just beware. This type of language is going to be used to provoke the church and call upon the church to accept that which we cannot ever accept. And so, we see the power of the gospel. It is on display to do the supernatural. More importantly, to do the supernatural work of bringing salvation. Now, the power that's on display in these accounts is certainly uh, reflective of that which, is hap which happened. But it is a foretaste of what we'll experience in heaven one day. And, you know, as a pastor, I would love to see the curse of sickness and death reversed. Um, I've I, I buried too many people already, and it's, and it's tragic. But as we transition into our celebration of the Lord's Supper, indeed, we, we do look back on the suffering of our Lord, and that is appropriate. But the Lord's Supper is a promise. It is a promise that one day, that curse that is part and parcel, it, it, it really defines our life in a fallen world in so many ways, that one day, that curse shall be removed. So he reminds us to hear this gospel and celebrate this event of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ until that day when we shall sin no more. So I'm going to call Drew to come forward, and I'm going to close this portion in prayer. Father, thank you for your word to us, a word that has never lost its power, never lost its meaning, never lost its application uh, to the entire world, and certainly its application to all who believe. I pray that we would be increasingly convinced of your truth, increasingly empowered by your Spirit. Bless us as we remember that which you have done for us and await the promise of that which you will do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.